0: vigorous music you just heard was the beginning of a piece by composer Alexander Cherepnin, his sonata in one movement for clarinet and piano. It's the opening work on a new album, Chicago Clarinet Classics, featuring clarinetist John Broussier. Those of you who have listened before know that every time we have a new recording on CD, we have a new Classical Chicago podcast. This is episode number 59. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of CD Records and host of these podcasts. Chicago Clarinet Classics is our March 2023 release on CD Records and is made possible by generous support from the Sage Foundation, who has been a supporter of John's work for a long time. On this classical Chicago podcast, my guest is clarinetist John Broussier. Hi, John.
1: Hi, Jim. So happy to be here with you. I'm
0: so glad to have you. So, before we begin the conversation, just a few words about John. John is a 45 year veteran of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And in fact, John is the longest serving clarinetist in the history of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. He first joined in 1977. At the age of 19, and two years later, he became assistant principal clarinet, a role in which he serves to this day. He has soloed many times with the Chicago Symphony and other orchestras around the world. He's also been a guest artist on many chamber music series and music festivals around the globe. He has a wide discography on many labels, including, counting this one, eight albums on I'm so pleased to say the most recent of which, devoted to clarinet music by Chicago composer Jim Stevenson, was nominated for a Grammy. And he is also the founder of the Chamber Ensemble, made up mostly of Chicago Symphony members, Chicago Pro Musica, which he founded in 1979. And that ensemble has the distinction of being the only winner of the Grammy for Best New Classical Artist, which was awarded only once in 1986. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, quite a coup.
1: After we did it, they broke them all.
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I I did a little (laughs) research on this, and there used to be an award in the 60s for three years called Most Promising New Classical Recording Artist.
1: Peter Serkin.
0: That's right. You're in very good company. Andre Watts, 64, Marilyn Horn, 65, and Peter Serkin in 66, and then they discontinued that one, and then they brought it back under the new name in 86, and Chicago Pro Musica beat out the likes of folks like Essa Pekka
1: Saladin that year. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber's wife. soprano.
0: Oh, that's right. Sarah Brightman was also one of the nominees that year. Very good. I remember that. So kudos for that. And the album that won the award or that made Chicago Pro Musica the best new classical artist was a really terrific recording combining the Soldier's Tale Suite of Stravinsky and Walton's Facade on uh, reference recordings. And I highly recommend people look that one up if they can John has recorded on CD, both as a soloist and as a member of Chicago Pro Musica, which has appeared on the label as well. So excited about this new program, which, of course, as you might guess from the title, Chicago Clarinet Classics, it's all Chicago composers. The album booklet actually opens with a personal statement where you talk about how this album came about from the original idea to record a different work by one of the composers on this album, Chicago composer Leo Sowerby, could you talk about that and how the program evolved to feature the repertoire it does?
1: Absolutely, well, you in your infinite wisdom <laughs> wrote to me about putting together the Sourby Wind Quintet for a Sourby recording. And so I did a little bit of research and I said, sure, this is a piece I don't know, but I do know Sowerby's music because back in the 1980s, Schulte programmed a piece, Comes Autumn Time. It's a little overture for orchestra. I remembered playing that and I knew Sowerby was a big organist in town during the early part of the 20th century. And so I was familiar with Sowerby, but not much of his music. So I looked up the quintet and I decided, yeah, well, this is a substantial work and certainly should be performed. So we got to work on that. We actually put it together for a CSO TV production that was happening during the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, of course, we had a shutdown, so no orchestra work could be done. Only small chamber works, which we did on video only, and then I had some time for some research. and. I delved further into Sowerby and I found that he had this gigantic sonata from 1938 that I didn't know about. So I looked it up and I talked to some friends and very few people had known about this piece, but a couple of them had played it. One of them, Russell Harlow, whom I grew up with, who recently retired from the Utah Symphony, had played it. So I got the music and started studying it. and finding that this is a massive work and certainly unusual because Sowerby has a certain harmonic style that we don't see a lot of in clarinet and piano sonatas. So I was happy to make this discovery. And then the idea popped into my mind. I said, well, you know, there might be other really good pieces for clarinet and piano written by Chicago composers or composers that have a close connection with Chicago and that was the spark that made this collection. Looking deeper, I found Alexander Cheropnin's Sonata in One Movement, which is piece I also wasn't familiar with. And then Teresa, my wife, who's also a clarinet player, said, "Oh, why don't you do the Muzinsky time pieces?" Because she had been working on that recently. I said, "Well, of course, Muzinsky time pieces probably is the only repertoire work that's on this collection, and it certainly should be." played, but it's it's quite difficult, quite challenging, both technically and also to bring out the musical message. This will be great. And then thinking about all sorts of other Chicago composers that have had contact with and have done work with, and you suggested that maybe we do Stacy Garrup's piece for Unaccompanied Clarinet. I said, well, I know Stacy and I love her, but I didn't know she had a piece for Unaccompanied Clarinet phoenix rising which exists in several different forms the original for a soprano saxophone unaccompanied and then she did a version for flute unaccompanied and a version for clarinet unaccompanied i looked at that and i said wow this is a really good piece but it's really hard so we have several difficult pieces but luckily i had time to work them up because i wasn't doing orchestrating that time we were just sitting in our vacation home in rural Michigan. I had plenty of time to get up in the morning and study these works that I hadn't had time to play before. And other things too, like the John Williams clarinet concerto, which I've grown to love, and just delving into music that I hadn't really had time to with a full-time orchestra schedule. So this was basically a pandemic project born out of this spark that you made of bee.
0: Your story about how a pandemic allowed you the time to put together a program like this, I've heard this echo by many Sadie artists about some of the albums we've released in the last couple of years that have said the same thing. A silver lining of the pandemic was that it allowed them the time to put together programs so that they just would not have been able to if they were doing their full performance and touring schedules. So I guess that's one small benefit. And I say that as I am recording this podcast remotely, because after three years of avoiding this plague, I actually tested positive for COVID this week. We're recording this in the middle of January, I should note.
1: So this is a beautiful evolution that this program came together. And then thinking of other pieces that could be clarinet and Chicago connected. And of course, there was Shulamit Rahn's piece for an actor. But that piece was written back in 1978, and it had been recorded several times, including by my very good friend and colleague, Larry Combs. But I thought, oh, this is a great piece, I would like to do it too. So I worked it up, played it on a recital, and I asked Shulamit if she'd get together with me and look at it listened to what I was doing with it. And she made some suggestions and then she said, by the way, do you have my more recent unaccompanied clarinet piece, Spirit? And I said, no, I didn't know of it. So she sent it to me and I said, wow, this is perfect. And then at the same time, my wife Teresa was working on some composition which she didn't really have time to devote to composition most because she is a performing clarinetist and an educator teaching all the time. But during the pandemic, she also had time to work on composition so this whole project sort of coalesced during the time of uh, lockdown we were in our idyllic vacation spot in michigan practically for an entire year so teresa Riley was making her compositional debut on this album of course she's played clarinet with me many times in the chicago symphony and we've made other solo and duet recordings together but this is her first compositional debut. And her piece, The Forgiveness Train, is also born from this pandemic isolation, and it has lots of bird song in it because we hear birds in Michigan. It's just a wonderful addition. So then we have these three historical pieces, historical meaning 20th century works for clarinet and piano written by dead white men composers. And then we have three 21st century works by living, breathing women composers in Chicago. It's a perfect balance, and it's such a wonderful variety of different styles. I couldn't be more delighted how this turned out. I hope listeners will be as delighted because this has become a labor of love, and it's a delightful program. The sequence in which Jim arranged it all is wonderful.
0: Well, the sequence was based on your recital at Roosevelt, of course, Chicago College of Performing Arts, Gans Hall recital, which included all but one of the pieces. And so I actually used that order. Actually, the funny part is I hadn't referenced that till i come up with what I thought was the best order. And then I came across the program for that concert. I'm like, oh, it's exactly the same order, except for putting Teresa's piece in there. (laughs) Right. So before we move on to the individual pieces on the program itself, do you want to say a word about the album dedication?
1: During the pandemic, my early clarinet teacher from when I was in junior high school and high school, Gary Gray, who was a huge influence on me and many, he was a principal clarinetist in the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra and professor for 50 years of clarinet at UCLA, my alma mater. He passed away in December of 2020. And so I dedicate this album to his memory because he was such a huge influence on me. And I was sorry to lose him so early because he certainly had so much more to give. And I hope to honor him and his influence on me with making this recording.
0: Well, to move on to the program itself, there are six works on the program. And I should note that three of them are world premieres outright on recording. And one is a premiere of the clarinet version. Uh, that, of course, is the piece by Stacey Garup that you mentioned was originally written for soprano saxophone that already makes this program unique and special. And for each piece, we will attempt to discuss uh, the composer's relationship to Chicago, as well as, John, your personal relationship to the composer and or his or her music. So let's start with uh, Cherupnin, who comes from a very musical family. John, can you talk about that upbringing and what brought him to Chicago?
1: Uh, Cherupnin was born in Russia and lived from 1895 to 1977. And he came from a very musical family. His dad, Nikolai Cherepnin, studied with Nikolai Rimsky-Korskov back in St. Petersburg. They had lots of friends, all the famous Stravinsky and Diaghilev and all those from the early 20th century would be at their house. So eventually Alexander Cherepnin moved out when they had the revolution and then went to Paris for several years. And it was during this time in 1939 that he wrote his sonata in one movement. It's not actually a piece that he wrote in Chicago, but very shortly after he wrote this piece, he did come to Chicago and uh, was on the faculty of DePaul University School of Music for many years, where one of the other composers on this album studied with him, uh, Robert Muczynski, was a student of Alexander Cherepnin. Alexander Cherepnin, he had three sons, at least two of whom became composers as well. One of them, I think, Serge Cherepnin, if I'm not mistaken, is very well known in the electronic music community. He was a pioneer in composing electronic music. So there's the connections there with Chicago, and Cherepnin was also very well connected with the musical community in Chicago, and he was a very good friend of uh, Rudolf Gantz, who was at the Chicago College of Music, which is where both Teresa and I teach now at the Roosevelt University. So it was a tight-knit musical community, and Sowerby was also part of that community. So this was in the early 20th century. These composers made their home in Chicago and were inspired to write music for the Chicago music community. So I was happy to discover these very substantial works and put them together. The Cherubnin Sonata in One Movement is an accessible, sprightly, varied work, but it doesn't last very long, but it has a lot in it. And I remember when Patrick and I were rehearsing this, it was during the time when we were actually back at playing holiday concerts at orchestra hall. And there's this one place towards the end, right before the very coda of the Cherubnin, that sounds just like jingle bells. We just look at each other and just laugh. (laughs) So that might be something that listeners can uh, try to identify. And it's just a lovely work to play. And it's got everything. It makes use of the whole range of the clarinet. And it's sprightly and rhythmically driving it. And other places, it's lyrical and singing. And It was a fun discovery.
0: Well, uh, that's perfect entree because I want to play the second half of the piece. Of course, uh, we heard the vigorous opening at the beginning of this podcast. It's only a five minute piece. Here is the second half of Alexander Cheropnin's Sonata in One Movement for Clarinet and Piano, as performed by John Broussier, clarinet, and Patrick Godin, piano, on their new album on CD Records, Chicago Clarinet Classics. (laughs) just heard the second half of a short piece by alexander Cherapine, russian composer who spent the last quarter century or so of his life in chicago as performed on their new cd records album by clarinetist john brussier and pianist patrick godin john you mentioned that you didn't really know this work before you started this project yes. do you have a sense of how well known it is generally in the clarinet community
1: I have a sense that it's not known at all in the clarinet community. Oh, wow. I looked for recordings of it. I could find maybe one YouTube video of somebody performing Mm -hmm. it on a recital back in the 1970s. Wow. And I thought, wow, this is a pretty cool piece. And so that was my discovery. And it was based on just digging for other pieces that were written by Chicago composers.
0: Well, that is really amazing to me because it is such a terrific piece and it's been around for quite a while, having been written in 1939. So I'm so glad you're able to bring it out and so brilliantly on this recording.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Well fast forward to a composer who was not born until 30 years after that piece was written Stacy Garup. The second piece on the program is the premiere on recording of the clarinet version of her piece titled Phoenix Rising. Originally written for soprano saxophone, also exists in version for flute. Stacy is a composer whose music has been championed quite a bit on Sadie Records. In fact, when this album is released Stacy's music will appear on a full dozen Albums on CD, including two devoted exclusively to her music, and there will be a third soon. In fact, a month before this album will be released in March, March 10th to be exact. In February of this year, 2023, we are recording her oratorio, Terra Nostra, which includes chorus and multiple choirs as well as soloists, so it's a major work so we look forward to coming out with that stacy uh, has also the distinction of being chicago opera theater's first vanguard Emerging Opera Composer in Residence. She had that post from 2018 to 2020. She's also served as composer in residence for the Champagne Urbana Symphony. She used to teach at Roosevelt University, Chicago College of Performing Arts, and she actually credits the notoriety she gained through her CD Records albums as one of the things that allowed her to leave that post actually and become a full-time freelance composer living off of the commissions for her works. So I'm very glad that Sadie could be helpful in, in that regard. And of course, the music world should be very glad because gives Stacy so much more time to compose, and she is certainly very prolific. So John, I should ask you, when did you first work with Stacy and, and get to know her music?
1: Yes, I did become acquainted with Stacy more than 20 years ago when she joined the faculty at Roosevelt University. And shortly thereafter I joined the faculty, and so we were colleagues for quite a while and I really enjoyed her music, especially her chamber music, and I was always hoping to commission a piece from her for Chicago Pro Musica. Never got around to that, but you know, of course there's still time for that in the future. And I enjoy her company because she's such a delightful individual, and we were happy to play her piece, The Battle for the Ballot, at Ravinia at the Chicago Symphony last summer, which was a special event. Yeah, Stacey and I have been friends and colleagues for more than 20 years, so I'm happy to present this first recording of her clarinet version of Phoenix Rising. It's such a wonderful, evocative challenging work. And I'm just so happy that she took the time to work with me on it and did give some really valuable feedback during my preparation of this piece as well as during the recording. I'm really excited and, and gratified that we've we've been able to put this together.
0: Can you mention anything specific she told you about the piece as you were learning it?
1: Yes. Well, first of all, the narrative is so important. It, it really paints the picture of this first movement, this 800-year-old phoenix with this bird dying on a funeral pyre. And then there are various different effects, like bending of tones, like oh, like moaning, and then the flapping of the wings that are worked in. These are special effects, but they're worked into the regular clarinet techniques,
0: Before we go any further, I would like to play the end of the first movement, just the last few seconds, so people can hear both of those effects you just mentioned. Technically, how do you produce those?
1: Well, first of all, the fluttering effect is just not actually playing through the instrument, but playing over the mouthpiece going like that. You can just do that near the clarinet mouthpiece, and then bending requires a special flexibility of both the air and the lips, so you bend the tone a certain way, and it's just one of those things you have to get used to because we don't use it in standard practice. It's only a special effect, and so those were things that I had to work on to get just right to make the story come alive, and or maybe in this particular case, the story of a dying bird.
0: Let's hear that then. Here's just the last few seconds of the first movement, Dying in Embers, and we'll hear both of those effects right now. Mm. So you just heard just the last seconds of the first moment from Phoenix Rising a piece by Stacy Garup since you've been referencing the program here's how Stacy succinctly describes the program in the notes to the album first moment dying in embers represents an old phoenix settling on top of a pile of embers and breathing its last breath which you just heard and the second moment reborn in flames depicts the newly reborn phoenix enjoying its first taste of flight. And you said that the narrative helps inform your performance. So it's not just, quote, pure music when you approach a piece like this. Is that correct?
1: That is right. The story completely guides my performance. I have to have a very clear mental picture of what this bird is doing. And so that is a challenge to bring off, to have soaring and fluttering and swooping and all those different visual cues to be able to do that using audio effects is a challenge on the clarinet. And she also has versions for flute and for violin now of this work. And we've come to the conclusion the clarinet version is probably the most challenging to bring off. But Mm. I hope we were able to accomplish that. She gave me some very valuable suggestions like, in the first movement, take plenty of time, take plenty of pauses where they're indicated and not to rush them. Mm. And then what I came up with in the second movement of flight was the variety of different internal dynamics that need to be done to give the impression of flying and floating and various different volatility changes. That's part and parcel of making this work come alive.
0: Oh, great. Does its origin as a soprano sax piece inform your performance at all?
1: Well, the soprano sax and the clarinet are fairly similar instruments in the way they produce sound. They're both single reed instruments. They're pitched at the same B-flat. They are both about the same range. So, it would seem very natural that soprano sax version would transfer very easily to the clarinet. From that point of view, it's almost the same, I would say.
0: Good to know. The two movements, as you reference, have very different moods. We just heard the sad ending of the first movement, and we're going to move on, actually, to the first couple minutes of the second movement. How is the mood of that movement for you as we hear this phoenix being, well, first we hear the fire rekindle and then the phoenix come out of it and begin to test its
1: legs and its wings. It's a very vivid image in my mind that I want to recreate. And I think that's where the volatility of different dynamic and articulation goes to spark this. And then there are moments after certain pauses in this movement where the phoenix floats and the phoenix swoops, we have to automatically immediately change the expression and how we use the air to create these effects. So the volatility changes need to be very exaggerated to make this really come off. It's not so much just playing the notes in the right place, it's really making them come alive and There's another piece in our repertoire, The Firebird of Stravinsky, and I always, in teaching this, say, have you ever been in a room with a bird just flying like a wild bird? And that's the sort of volatility that we have to capture in this kind of music. So it requires a very specific, precise control of air and precise control of articulation to be able to synchronize all of those things to create this picture. If one thing is a little out of sync, it doesn't paint as good a picture. This was a major challenge.
0: All right. Well, let's hear some of that then. Here is the first two minutes of the second movement, Reborn in Flames, from Phoenix Rising, a piece by Stacy Garup, composed in 2016 on the new Sadie Records album, Chicago Clarinet Classics, featuring clarinetist John Broussier. <laughs> just heard John Brusier performing the first couple minutes of the second movement of Phoenix Rising for solo clarinet by Chicago composer Stacy Garup And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, and I sure hope you are, you can find this album when it is released on March 10, 2023, on all the streaming sites you enjoy. You can also order it, even pre-order it, ahead of release date on places like Amazon.com and, of course, the CD Records website, c-e-d-i-l-l-e-records.org. But however you like to experience or obtain your music, it will be there, and I sure hope you'll want to take advantage of that. In the case of the three contemporary works on the album, I should note the composers were present at the recording sessions. And in one case, of course, the composer was performing as well because Teresa Riley's pieces for two clarinets. Uh, What was it like working with the composers at the recording sessions?
1: Well, one of the joys of my career has been to collaborate with living composers in the process of creating new repertoire. It's a privilege to work with somebody in the creation of their music. So I was delighted that Shulamit and Stacy, and of course Teresa were all able to be part of the process of recording and it makes it even more special to be able to have direct communication with a composer and get their feedback and get their ideas and get their inspiration from this. And I thank you and I thank Sadi for making this possible. I hope the listeners will be as gratified as we are.
0: Well, and I've certainly enjoyed working with the composers at the sessions because I can always do my best as a producer to try to guess what a composer had in mind. And of course, with dead composers, that's all you can do. When there's a composer's right there to say, no, I really wanted that Sforzando to be a little stronger, or I didn't really want that Sforzando to be quite so much, wonderful to have them there.
1: Absolutely. Right. Directly from the inspiration of the composer is so important. Absolutely.
0: Well, now we move back in time again to the largest work on the program, which you described in your personal note as a massive work on the scale of a Brahms sonata. And in fact, it's actually about four minutes longer than either Mm -hmm. of Brahms clarinet sonatas. We're talking about the 1938 sonata for clarinet and piano of Leo Sowerby, a major figure in Chicago music in the past. It's in four movements, like the first Brahms sonata, but with its witty scherzo actually coming second and the slow movement third, which is the reverse of Brahms's ordering of the middle movements. We talked earlier about how... Your exploration of Sowerby was instigated by our original idea that we might record his early wind Quintet, which ended up not being on the all-Leo Sowerby album we eventually did release a couple years ago. This was an album which the genesis of this album was the works that Sowerby had written for the Paul Whiteman Orchestra in the mid-1920s for the same tour that created Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, for example it's a jazzier side of Sowerby, and then we ended up doing other early works but we ended up going with strings so we did his first string quartet and some other works.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that that particular omission will open up the door to <laughs> Chicago Wind Quintet class. Excellent. Of which the Sowerby Wind Quintet will be a major part. And so we're already putting together that project with Chicago Pro Musica. So Stay tuned, folks.
0: Excellent. You mentioned that you had some knowledge of Sowerby through performing his Overture Comes Autumn Time with Schulte. And I should note that piece is quite a storied history and, in fact, appears both in the orchestral version and in its original version for Oregon on Sadie Records on different albums as well. Can you talk a little bit about Sowerby's importance as a Chicago composer and his relationship with the orchestra you've called home for the past 45
1: years? Well, Sowerby, when he came to Chicago, he attracted the attention of Frederick Stock. This was back when Sowerby was only 18. He'd written his violin concerto, and that was such a success that Frederick Stock programmed many of Sowerby's works on Chicago Symphony programs in the early part of the 20th century. And in conjunction with that, Sowerby became the organist at St. James Cathedral and also became the head of the composition department at the American Conservatory of Music. So he was into performing in church music, he was into educating young musicians, as well as being a composer of orchestra works. He was an all-around really major influence and member of the Chicago musical community in the early 20th century. When we talk about his music, it's a little bit off-kilter from Brahms. It's not the same The textures are reminiscent of Brahms, but the harmony is certainly not in the melody. The melodic impulses are different. I'm thinking of the massive length of this piece, and it's a completely different harmonic language, and that's Sowerby's own. It's something that you have to get into, and Patrick and I, working through this piece, found a mine that you keep digging into and getting more and more treasures out of it. And we really found this work to be full of treasures. I'm happy that it's being presented on this recording and I'm astonished that it hasn't been recorded until now, but I think it's a tough nut to crack at first. Also astonishing that Sowerby did play the clarinet. When he joined the army in World War I, he played the clarinet so he can be in the army band. But this piece isn't necessarily clarinetistic. It's more how you would imagine an organist to be doing an improvisation. And that was the way his wind quintet was also. Parts of it seemed to be like an organist's improvisation. So that is something that came to mind when we were working on this piece. It became more and more gratifying as we were working on it and And I hope the listener gets as much pleasure out of listening to it as we do performing it, because it's really a tribute to this style that was from the early 20th century, and it was born in Chicago, basically.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Sowerby's harmonics, because I think it is fair to say he really did have a harmonic style all his own, and that the style, I think, owes a lot to his history as an organist in performing all those very full chords. Mm -hmm.
1: Indeed. A lot of times the piano is playing 10 times as many notes as the clarinet is. My hat's off to my collaborator, Patrick Godin, for playing all those. Amazing. And he's a very experienced organist and church musician also. So he came to that with that sort of experience and it was very advantageous.
0: And I should note that uh, organists do know Sauerby's work very well because he was a major composer for organ. I had a couple of things to his history because he really was essentially the de facto composer in residence for the Chicago Symphony throughout the 20s and 30s under Frederick Stock. Pretty much the CSO would premiere a new work of his every year. Uh, Mm -hmm. He also was the first winner of the American Prix de Rome Fellowship that allowed him to study in Rome in 1921, and the only composer who didn't have to compete for it. He actually got it by dint of reputation. Mm -hmm. He also won the 1946 Pulitzer Prize In music for his cantata, The Canticle of the Sun, which is also recorded on CD and so far only on CD. So we're very pleased we've been able to bring out so much of his music that hasn't been recorded, including this clarinet sonata that's been around for 85 years, but you're the first to actually make a proper recording of it.
1: It's amazing. This music is well worth popularizing. It's something that clarinetists may have shied away from for a long time because. It doesn't show its treasures immediately. You have to dig for it, but then when you do, it's rewarding.
0: Well, the pieces and four movements, I wonder if we can just speak a little about them. And I should note, one of Sowerby's trademarks, which he learned, for incidentally, from Percy Granger, with whom he studied at the American Conservatory starting in 1915, was that he would write his movement titles in plain English, none of right. this Italian stuff. Right. <laughs> It was also Granger who suggested he take up the clarinet Well, when the war was breaking out.
1: <laughs> I see. Well, it may have provoked him to write this sonata. It obviously didn't become his major instrument, because I think his major instrument, the organ, mm-hmm. actually created more of an inspiration to him for this work as well as other works.
0: Well, that's interesting. Yeah. So there's an atmospheric opening movement titled Slow and Somber, and Sowerby actually spells somber, S-O-M-B-R-E. Curiously enough. Sombre. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) There's a very witty scherzo. Here's a typical sour bee movement marking, exuberantly, but not too fast. (laughs) Then there's the very beautiful slow moon, quietly flowing. And then the fourth movement again has a perfect descriptive title. (laughs) Bright and Merry. (laughs) That's right. What do you take from these titles, and what would you want to say about the individual movements?
1: Well, of course, Bright and Merry struck us because we were rehearsing for the holiday concerts, so we were in the Bright and Merry spirit already. And then the other movements all made natural sense when you understood what he was talking about. So let the music speak for itself.
0: Well, let's do that. And I have to say or confess that I tend to be one who gravitates towards faster and more exciting movements. But in this case, I find the slow movement just so sublime.
1: It's delightful. It's beautiful.
0: And I thought we could hear like the last little more than a third of it as our excerpt. What would you like to say about what makes this movement so special?
1: Well, it floats and it has this almost wc like quality of fluidity to it. And so that's what I experienced. And then the floating clarinet line on top of the arpeggios that are very fluid, I would say that the fluidity and the song-like quality create a special atmosphere.
0: Well, that's a perfect description. So let's just go with that. This is the uh, not quite all second half of the third moment, quietly flowing from Leo Sowerby's 1938 Sonata for Clarinet and Piano, performed by John Brucier Clarinet and Patrick Godin Piano. You just heard a portion of the lyrical slow movement titled Quietly Flowing from Chicago composer Leo Sowerby's Sonata for Clarinet and Piano, written in 1938. And incidentally, Sowerby's dates are 1895 to 1968, and he spent... From 1908 until 1962 of that span in Chicago and you just heard that performed on the new album Chicago clarinet classics you heard it performed by John Broussier clarinet my guest on this podcast and Patrick Godin piano actually this might be a good time John to talk about working with Patrick both in general in performance and specifically as a recording partner
1: Patrick and I have been good friends, and my wife, Teresa Riley, and Patrick actually went to school together at DePaul University. So we've all grown to be very good friends and family friends together and have had many opportunities to perform recitals. And since Patrick is also a conductor, we've played many times in orchestras with him in his tower chorale. He conducts, we played Requiems by Mozart, by Brahms and lots of chamber music together. So Patrick is a dear friend and regular keyboard player with the Chicago Symphony. We've collaborated on many projects and this particular one was very special as was the previous one where we played Jim Stevenson's clarinet music. So he's become a regular partner and consider him very very close friend and and we're happy to do these projects together. It's, It's a delight to work with Patrick.
0: And I can say, uh, as album producer, it was a pleasure to work with Patrick on this album, as well as you, John. Thank you. Now, Patrick's not in the next piece, however. The next piece is another solo clarinet work, and this one is by... Composer Shulamit Ron, who has been on the faculty of the University of Chicago since 1973. She's Professor Emeritus now. She is one of those composers who's won just about every honor that is out there to be won. She's a member of both the American Academy of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She was the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's second composer in residence, serving. From 1990 to 1997, like Sowerby, she is also a Pulitzer Prize for Music winner. She won, in her case, for her symphony, which she wrote in 1991. Uh, This is a major figure, not just in Chicago, uh, but in in music in America and, and the world over. How well did you know her before we started working with her on this album, and what other works of hers have you played?
1: Sure. I've known Shulamit since almost the very day I moved to Chicago back in 1977. She was already a distinguished professor at the University of Chicago, and I played lots of her chamber music. And when she was composer-in-residence in the Chicago Symphony, we played several of her orchestra works that she wrote specially for us. So I've known her also as a friend and colleague for more than 40 years. And I'm happy that she actually brought this piece to my attention because I was aware of her earlier clarinet work for an actor monologue. And when I prepared that, she mentioned Spirit that she had written recently in 2017 after the death of Laura Flax, who was a very important and active and creative new york freelance clarinet player that played in groups like the capo chamber players and she and shulamit had formed a very close bond and a lot of shulamit's chamber music which i've also played was written with laura in mind i had met laura a few times and so we were both upset with her untimely passing and then Shulamit was inspired to write this work in honor and in memory of, of Laura. And most of the work is ebullient and upbeat and passionate because that was the sort of musician that Laura was. At the very end, it becomes with this atmosphere of resignation and of sadness only at the very end. And then the last three notes are these ghostly
2: oh, oh,
1: it's A, which is la, re, which is D, f, like that. So it just evaporates, and then always in my heart is what Shuleiman writes at the end of this piece. So it is a very personal, and the fact that I had known Laura also, it makes it very poignant to play this piece, and I'm happy we were able to record it. I should
0: note the full title of the work, in fact, is Spirit for Solo Clarinet Parentheses in Memory of Laura Flax. I should also note that that earlier work you mentioned for an actor monologue for clarinet was actually written in memory of Laura's mother, Hazel Flax. So there's quite a history here. And let me just read uh, what Schulman has to say about it in the notes to the album. She writes, in all of my clarinet music, Laura is present. The rich sound, blazing technique, and brain and guts that she brought to her playing and her remarkable person have inspired me in so many ways during the four decades of our friendship and beyond. I did not want spirit to be about absence, though. I wanted the piece to exhibit a wider range of emotions as well as capture at least a tiny glimpse of Laura's brilliant spirit and spiritedness. Only in the work's final stretch does the sense of parting and of loss take over, and you've already... John done a very nice job of explaining how that is heard in the piece at the end with the reference to her name in Pianissimo at the very end. But I thought it might be fun to hear more of the spirited part of spirit. Uh, So I've chosen an excerpt more from the first half of the piece, starting about a minute in. But before I get to that, I guess I should ask you, how moving an experience is it for you to play this, especially since you also knew the clarinetist to whom it was dedicated?
1: Well, it was a very moving experience for me, and, and it was a privilege to get to play this piece that Shulimit wrote in memory of somebody that we both knew. And I, of course, know Shulimit's musical language, which is also unique. From playing a lot of her chamber music works, I actually have recorded quite a few of her chamber works, Mirage and Chamber Concerto Number 1. It was a wind quintet and several of her orchestra pieces. So I knew what to expect. But Shulamit had some really good suggestions for me to even enhance the performance of Spirit. turned out to be very moving to listen to it after having recorded it, and it it really was crafted so well to honor a fallen colleague.
0: I was just going to ask if you could mention anything specific Shulamit told you about the piece.
1: Well, she specifically just pointed out a few places that maybe rhythmically or pacing-wise, needed to be altered a little bit. She notates so carefully and so specifically that one is able to understand exactly the message just by reading her notation. So that was very self-explanatory.
0: Well, you've already mentioned the ending, a quiet tribute to uh, Laura at at the end there. Uh, The piece certainly has moments of lyricism, but also moments of spikiness and motifs that recur. And I thought we could hear one of the more spirited section of spirits, chosen an excerpt, basically the first half of the piece starting about a minute in. And this has some quite jaunty passages like these sometimes remind me of Stravinsky's Petrushka. Do you think there might be a reference there?
1: I didn't think there might be, but maybe so. Shulamit certainly knows all of those. And sometimes I ask composers whether they had in mind of a particular piece that sounds just like it. And no, 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 I wasn't even thinking of that. So it might be subconscious.
0: Indeed. Well, let's let people judge for themselves. Here's an excerpt from Shulamit Ron's Spirit for Solo Clarinet as performed by John Broussier. just heard an excerpt from a piece titled Spirit or Solo Clarinet in Memory of Laura Flax, composed in 2017 by Shulamit Ron, as performed by John Broussier on his new Sadie Records album, March 2023 release, Chicago Clarinet Classics. And if you're enjoying the excerpts you're hearing on this podcast, I would again remind you that the album will become available on March 10th, and you can hear it on streaming sites at that point, and you can order it From wherever you like to get your music, if you prefer downloads or physical CDs, including off the C D Records website, C-E-D, I L L E records.org. The next piece on the album obviously has personal significance for you uh, and brings in your other performing collaborator on the album. I'm of course speaking of your wife, Teresa Riley. And so in this case, I will let you introduce the composer, her history, and, of course, your relationship with her.
1: I'm very proud of my lovely and talented spouse, Teresa Riley, and she's certainly multi-talented. Her main activity is performing on the clarinet, and we've played many times together in recitals and in the Chicago Symphony. And, And now, this year, we are both the clarinet faculty at the Chicago College of Performing Arts where many of the other composers have had relationships. This is her debut as a composer and a composer performer on this album. So it's a very special piece. And Teresa came to composition early on. She says that when she was in high school, she had an internship at Western Michigan University where she grew up in Kalamazoo with an electronic music composer. So she had experience doing MIDI and sampling and different electronic music composition because she was in a high school for sciences. And then she eventually went to college here in Chicago at DePaul University, where she had a background in sound recording. And in the sound recording curriculum, they include writing electronic music. So that was basically her first and her only training in composition. But over the years, She's always had many, many ideas and melodies come to her easily. And she is able to collect these melodies. And then when the pandemic came, the performance took a back seat. And she finally had time to think about doing a project of composition. And we were in rural Michigan with our daughter and our dog. And we'd hear these bird songs all around. And these bird songs, and as well as dreams came together to form the genesis for this duet for two clarinets, The Forgiveness Train. And the occasion of the October of 2020 public performance of this coincided with a lot of racial tensions in America, and people were all up in arms about the murder of George Floyd. And so this all figured into her inspiration for this piece, as well as dreams that she had of different subjects, as well as her grandmother. Her grandmother used to make quilts for everybody in the family. So she had this idea of the first and the last movements being this patchwork quilt put together. And that was the way she came to making the different compositional aspects of this piece. And the middle movement, she had different aleatoric sections where we would choose from the different melodies and then play off of one another and that's the movement that has the most bird song and since it's aleatoric each performance varies and can vary quite a bit in length so actually we were the two participants performing but jim you were a big participant in putting together this second movement because of the different melodies that we played together in the different interactions, you had to choose which ones to put in certain orders. So I think it turned out so beautifully. We're very, very pleased with that. In Michigan, where we were at Sister Lakes, where we have our vacation home, we were there for an entire year. So we heard constant bird songs during the summer, and it was bird songs that Teresa heard in her childhood in Kalamazoo. There are also some unusual, atypical clarinet sounds used in this piece, invented through experimentation, and and you'll hear some of that in the first and the last movements.
0: Let me read what Teresa talks about. She says the forgiveness train, this piece, actually came to her in part because of a dream about being on a train, and she wrote in the notes, The train took me through the forest. The train derailed and was left hanging over an open body of water. As I lay there in a capsized train, I heard bird songs as clear as day. There was peace and beauty in the forest amid the frightening and precarious train wreck. The pandemic seemed to unearth past trauma within me and in the outside world as well. All I wanted to do was wrap myself in a blanket and hibernate till it was over. That's how she describes the origins of the piece. And of course, being about a train, it's not a surprise that there's a real rhythmic nature to the outer movements. But then you note the unusual aleatoric construction of the middle movement. So I should mention the way this is written, I'm looking actually at the score I used at the session and the first two lines are, are actually spelled out. I actually have edit marks written there, but then the rest I had to put together pretty much on the fly. There was no way I could actually mark this in the score. I could just take the different takes and put them together. And the trick here was there are eight different themes and there's some guidance as to what order they should come in and what one player should be doing when the other one picks one of these themes. And then eventually the return of theme one is supposed to indicate that the end is coming and that's where the last theme theme eight comes in how do you manage to uh, find each other at the end of this piece
1: we have a mental telepathy going as we get into this and then there are certain signals where if one player starts one then we know to join on a different accompanying theme and there's one place where we're improvising and it turned out that There was a section of the Rite of Spring that goes perfectly with melody that Teresa composed, so I just played along. And then (laughs) there are other places where we have to sense each other, and then it just requires real attention and sensitivity to one another as we're performing. And it can vary in length quite a bit, but this one turns out perfectly, so I think you captured a really good one.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, actually, it's not one. There were three takes of this movement, and they were very different, but it was fun putting together the best bits of each and putting together a version that seemed to fit the roadmap of the score fairly well. And I have to say, I was glad that when I got the comments back on this piece, there were changes requested in the first and third movement, but I was very happy that you seemed satisfied with how I would put this one together because I had no idea how I was going to be able to change anything once I had put this together. We were delighted
1: <laughs> at the way it turned out. So well, kudos you. to you, Jim. We're very, very happy about the way it turned out.
0: I am too, and I have people to hear it. So let's hear about the second half of this movement. It's quite improvisational within certain yes. guidelines. So here is a portion of the second movement. First movement is titled the derailment of fear, which obviously references that dream. The third movement is the rhythm of birth, and the middle movement that we're going to hear an excerpt from right now is titled The Gifts Beneath the Wounds, John Broussier and Teresa Riley, clarinets.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You just heard an excerpt from a movement titled, The Gifts Beneath the Wounds, from Teresa Riley's The Forgiveness Train for Two Clarinets, and the two clarinets were John Broussier and his wife, Teresa Riley, the composer Mm -hmm. of that piece. So now we've heard works for clarinet and piano, solo clarinet, and clarinet duo, so this might be a good time to talk about working with Sadie Records engineer Bill Malone and your experience of the recording sessions.
1: Well, Bill has always been very patient with me because I'm very picky about how I want myself to sound and to be represented. So we've had several different back-and-forth listening and making certain adjustments. Of course, every listener has a certain vantage point and a certain idea in their mind. So I found it helpful to be able to explain to Bill what I wanted to hear in in the clarinet sound, and he was very accommodating and was able to deliver what I asked. Over eight albums working together, we've become acquainted with one another, and of course they've been in different venues. So I always think, when I'm in a venue, how do I want to hear a performance? It's like each listener in a particular place, in a particular venue, has a particular experience. So. I'm hoping that each time we've maximized the listening experience for whoever is going to be listening to this recording. And Bill has been very sensitive and very accommodating when it comes to how we present our performance.
0: And I will note that for me how well the different types of pieces on piano, solo, duo fit together on this album. And of course, there was an even wider range of pieces on your previous CD album, the all works of Jim Stevenson, which ranged from a concerto to chamber works to solo works that happened to receive a Grammy nomination for the quality of the sound on that recording. So kudos to Bill for that.
1: Very important that CD pays such attention to the quality of sound, and that's what we want everybody to hear, the music in the best light.
0: To move now to the last work on the program, this is Robert Muschinski's Time Pieces for Clarendon Piano, Opus 43, written in 1983, and though it's written decades later than the first piece on the album, the Cheropnine, I feel this, especially the first moment, brings us to a similar sound world as the Cheripneen. Would you agree with that?
1: I would say that is true, and that is no coincidence because Robert Maczynski studied with Alexander Cherubnin at DePaul University. So I think that may have something to do with it. Oh, of course. It's become a real popular piece amongst clarinet players, but it really is quite challenging to pull off, at least in the way I saw it. So I'm happy to have had this opportunity to uh, work with Patrick on it and to present it in our way.
0: What more would you want to say about Mushinsky's career, including his time in Chicago?
1: Mushinsky was at DePaul University as a student, and the year he graduated, which was 1950, the clarinetist who was principal clarinet in the Chicago Symphony happened to be Mitchell Lurie. Mm. He spent exactly one season in the Chicago Symphony when he decided it was too cold in Chicago, and he (laughs) and his wife moved back to California. But they had that connection. And then in 1983, he, along with the International Clarinet Association, commissioned a work to be presented at the 1984 International Clarinet Association convention in London. So he commissioned Muchinsky to write these timepieces. And I think because it was presented at this convention, it immediately got attention and people wanted to play it so it's become a real staple in the clarinet repertoire and it's performed regularly on college recitals it's a difficult piece so it's performed at various different levels we wanted to perform it at the very very highest level he's called it time pieces there's a lot of a rhythmic intricacy in this piece, but it's all very standard notation. So we're really excited to be able to play timepieces by Muchinsky, And even though it's been recorded before, I hope people like our performance.
0: Well, I think it is fair to say that this is the one repertory piece for clarinetists on the album. I should ask if you've played other music of Muschinski and or if you ever met him.
1: I never got the chance to meet him. I feel like I know him because I have performed his wind quintet. And then there's a trio that he wrote for clarinet, cello, and piano that I haven't played, but I've heard. And, of course, he was a pianist, so most of his repertoire was for solo piano, and I think pianists know him for that. But this piece has really become popular, as well as I think he has a flute sonata that's become popular with flutists. As you say, it really is the only standard repertoire piece on this album, and I hope the other five pieces here become standard repertoire pieces, too, after people have a chance to hear it.
0: And what makes the piece so popular among clarinetists?
1: Like the cherubin, it's immediately accessible. It makes a positive effect. It's very challenging. There are several spots that are just unaccompanied clarinet in the piece. So that's unusual. There, The very beginning of the last movement is unaccompanied clarinet, and there's the middle of the second movement has the big cadenza. It's just very attractive piece. But Teresa was working on it. She was the one that said, you know, you should do the Machinsky timepieces.
0: Pieces and four movements. I have to read Muczynski's, what he wrote about it, which echoes some of what you just said. The music is made up of a number of elements, energetic syncopated rhythms, long and sustained melodic lines, cadenzas for solo clarinet, tongue-in-cheek humor, and an overall up feeling. For me, the title refers to when and where I was composing the work, sort of a frozen-in-time idea. However... Some listeners have offered their own interpretations as to what I had in mind, in all caps. Mm -hmm. And that keeps things lively.
1: Right. (laughs) That's right. People have said that he was also a watch collector. So that could be another twist to the title. But it is a provocative title. And the various different ways that he manipulates time in rhythm and in meter are very interesting. So that is a another attractive feature of, of this work.
0: Well speaking of keeping things lively, let's hear the first moment titled Allegro Risoluto, and it's short enough that we can hear the whole thing. Anything you'd like to say about it before we put it on?
1: Just enjoy like we did. All right. So here
0: is the first movement, Allegro Risoluto, from Robert Mushinsky's four movement suite titled Time Pieces for Clarinet and Piano Opus forty three. Once again we hear clarinetist Jean Brucier with pianist Patrick Godin. Uh-huh. heard the first movement from Robert Muschinski's four movement timepieces for clarinet and piano as performed by clarinetist John Broussier with Patrick Godin at the piano from the new album on Sadie Records being released March 2023, Chicago Clarinet Classics. And once again, I'll remind people that on March 10, this becomes fully available on all streaming sites. And if you placed a pre-order, that's when it will ship and you can order off of Archive Music, or Amazon.com, or CD Records' own website. So however you like to enjoy your music, I hope you'll want to check out this album. And now that people have heard excerpts from all six pieces, uh, again, three of them are world premieres, and one is a world premiere in the version for clarinet, uh, what would you like people to take away from this generous program? I should note it's almost 77 minutes. What would you like people to take away from the album as a whole?
1: Well, I would like people to enjoy this music and the variety that it presents and to actually discover something the way I discovered these pieces firsthand. Also to show that Chicago has been, at least for a century and a half, an incredible place for musicians and for music to thrive. The way Sadi has championed Chicago musicians and Chicago music has been a major reason that people know about this music. I mean, we wouldn't have discovered Sowerby's Sonata, which is huge, and brought to the attention new piece by a fledgling composer who's happened to be a performer on the clarinet for many years here with me. And I want people to enjoy and to have their imaginations sparked, and to just see what we're doing here.
0: I have to return the compliment, John, because without your advocacy, people wouldn't get to hear these pieces either. You know, for me, uh, running a label whose mission is to promote Chicago musicians, past and present performers and composers, this album really could not be more in our wheelhouse. So thank you for bringing us this project.
1: It's totally a labor of love, and I appreciate your support and your advocacy and everything that you do is just so positive. So thank you.
0: Well, so let me ask you, what's coming up for you in the rest of the 2023 concert season, including the summer?
1: Well, we're back in business at the Chicago Symphony, and we're just now about to embark on our first tour since February of 2020. So we've been in Chicago for that whole time of the pandemic, and now we're adventuring out. We're taking a North America tour in January and beginning of February, and then we're going back to Florida in the end of February and beginning of March. And then uh, finish out the season and finish out Maestro Muti's music directorship. And then we do Ravinia. And then uh, it's basically back to business as usual. And they're planning a a European tour in January of 2024. And Maestro Muti has agreed to conduct us on that too. I'm gonna still find time to do projects because as I mentioned, the wind quintet project for Chicago wind quintets is very close to the top of our list. And I'm very happy to be working on a project of performing uh, the music of John Williams, the clarinet concerto, which has never been recorded. A lot of those things are on my plate and have to be organized. And then uh, we have to work in family time too. So my wife and I are busy with our teenager and uh, my two older daughters and my, my middle daughter having two children, so I have grandchildren now. It's all about balance. I think balance is the key to life, and I like to make that my motto.
0: That's really lovely. Uh, Well, we've talked a lot about Chicago as a musical city on this podcast, of course, because of the album being all Chicago, and I think it really does say something about Chicago as a city, that you are able to construct a program of old and new music like this, but I still always end these podcasts with a question about what makes Chicago special as a musical city. I would love for you to talk as a 45 year veteran of the Chicago Symphony about how that institution has changed over the years in your personal experience and how classical music in Chicago outside of the symphony and lyric opera has also grown and diversified during your time.
1: Well, Chicago, since the time I came here in 1977, has always been a vibrant cultural center. And of course, one of the major proponents has been the Chicago Symphony, and I'm happy to see that it's thrived over the time I've been here, but it has also changed in so many ways. First of all, it's turned over about 90% in its membership. I think there are only about six people that have been in the orchestra longer than I have now and I'm already the longest-serving clarinetist in the history of the orchestra, it's a daily inspiration to me to work with such wonderful colleagues. And I think Chicago has always attracted great musicians and great artists and great communicators. I'm so happy to be part of it and to witness all the successes of my colleagues and gain incredible inspiration from them every day and from all different kinds of music in Chicago. CD is a huge part of that, and to bring it to the world's attention, there is something to bring, and the fact that we're bringing it is constantly raising the standards and maybe raising the expectations of people to see what's next to come out of Chicago. I'm very, very happy to be part of this vibrant community.
0: Well, you certainly are, John, and I want to thank you for being my guest on this podcast and for recording this wonderful album, Chicago Clarinet Classics. Mm -hmm. This has been another Classical Chicago podcast from Sadie Records. Thank you for listening.